0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, you're listening to the Anthropology channel of New Books Network. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm your host Yadong Li, a PhD student in Anthropology at Tulane University. Obeying rules and submitting to demands or requirements of others have been a critical feature of our daily life. Without compliance and obedience, there can be no orderly functioning of social life. This is especially true for people across the world who have experienced a variety of restrictions on their daily activities as governments, health officials, and international organizations have grappled with the COVID-19 pandemic. The added volume we will discuss today is about compliance. About how to understand the practices and reasons of compliance in different socio cultural contexts. Ultimately, this volume provides us with an alternative approach going beyond the dichotomous model of repression and resistance. I'm very glad to invite one of the editors of the volume, Dr. Will Rollison, to talk about this insightful new book. So, welcome to New Books in Anthropology, Will. Thank you very much indeed. Okay, thank you for joining us. So the new book we will discuss today, Compliance, Cultures and Networks of Accommodation, is published by Berghand berg Books in 2023. Dr. Will Rolison is a Senior Lecturer in Anthropology at Bruno University London. His research has focused mainly on Papua New Guinea and Rwanda. He wrote articles about youth, sports and politics Another editor of the volume, who unfortunately is not here today, is Professor Eric Hirsch. Professor Hirsch is professor in anthropology, also at Brunei University London, and his research also focused on Melanesian anthropology. So, well, I'm very excited to have this opportunity to chat about this new volume. But before our conversation, could you please introduce yourself to our audience? What brought you to anthropology and what are your research interests?
0: Uh, yeah, thank you very much. Well, as you say, I'm a I'm a senior lecturer at Brunel University London, uh, where actually I I, I share an office with with Eric. So uh, you know, we're, we 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 sit quite close together and we, we've done quite a lot of work together. Um, how did I come to anthropology? I think like quite a lot of anthropologists, kind of by accident, um, I started doing When I was doing my undergraduate at the London School of Economics, I started doing a degree in political science, but I couldn't do the maths. Um, And I was doing an elective in anthropology. So I was like, oh, this is cool. Um, And then I was one of those students who never quite, you know, gets round to getting a proper career. So I ended up working in universities rather than uh, having a real job. Um, So, I mean, that's how I got to it. I mean, what am I interested in? So as you say, I've done field research in southeastern Papua New Guinea um, and in Kigali and Rwanda. Um, And what I've been interested in, um, in those projects have been things about um, power. um, And particularly uh, power in relation to appearances and to performance. Um, And that was where the things about sport came in. And also latterly, um, and this is where this book um, sort of jumps off um, in issues about compliance and sorts of relationships in which people come to do what somebody else wants them to do without necessarily um, having to be compelled or coerced or, 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 or even directly asked to do things. Um, so, yeah, that's where I come from essentially.
1: Okay, thank you for sharing all this amazing information. And also, I'm also not, at, not good at mathematics at all, so I can totally understand. <laughs> so um, about the book, compliance is a scene both very familiar and strange to us, whether it's in everyday life or in anthropology, particularly. So specifically, it's hard to find the right words to describe or explain compliance, particularly about its significance, because we all know it's important in our social life, but we it's hard to explain why it is important. So as a volume about compliance, what do you want to accomplish through this book or what is the shared focus of all the contributions of this edited volume?
0: Okay, so I suppose one place to start is to think about the book provocatively, if you like. So what we wanted to do was to get our contributors to think about compliance as the opposite of resistance if you like. Um, So anthropologists like, on the whole, have liked since, I suppose, the late 1970s have liked talking about resistance. Um, And that's meant that non-resistant types of relationships sometimes have been sort of de-emphasized, in a way, in in, in certain areas of scholarship. So we wanted to get people thinking about, what would it actually mean to focus in on those relationships of of non-resistance? but also we wanted to try and get at and to unravel some of the implications of doing that um you know what would it mean theoretically actually to to bring relations of compliance into focus and really to problematize compliance so i mean concretely the the book's got chapters about farming in rwanda and corporate compliance um in europe and the usa tax compliance in in Scandinavia and Bolivia, medical compliance in South Africa, carbon offsetting, health and safety on building sites um, in the UK, and immigration in Italy. So we've got quite a broad range of sort of substantive topics. But what we'd ask contributors to do, and what we'd ask them to think about were the ways in which people do as they're told or do as they're expected to do or how they imagine uh, that they're expected to act. How how do they follow rules? How do they follow expectations? And we wanted to think about the things that make those relationships work. Right. So what the infrastructures might be that needed to be in place um, for people to to do as they were expected to do. And how that was also related to the persons or or to the the political subjects who are involved and what that would tell us, about the collectivities in which these relationships take place. So what we were really trying to do then was to unpack compliance as a sort of optic um, for thinking about social life more generally.
1: Thank you. I can totally agree with you that there is always a space between repression and resistance. So basically, we need to f- give more attention to how people strategically, but also unconsciously negotiate their everyday life going beyond this kind of dichotomy it's fantastic to witness this effort to you know explore this space so the so operation of social life requires compliance especially in times of crisis i know this book was produced during the COVID-19 pandemic, but specifically what prompted you and the contributors to have a volume about compliance? What was the story behind it and what was the idea originally from?
0: Um, okay, so, I mean, I should say that the core of this book um, was originally published as a special issue of Journal of Legal Anthropology. Um, and. I, You know, we have the editor of that journal, Namala Halstead, um, to thank for for inviting us to to put that together. So that was part of the impetus, was just being given space. And she basically said, you know, why don't you write us a special issue and um, think of something to do. So, I mean, that was part of the prompt. Um, The reason I wanted to think about compliance and the impetus to edit the book really came from my previous research, as I say, in Papua New Guinea um, and especially in Rwanda, um, and I should say that, as you said at the start, um the other editor, Eric Hirsch, um isn't here today. And the reason essentially that I'm talking to you rather than rather than him is that this volume is is essentially my fault. um whereas the other book that we've edited together, the melanesian world, um was was really his baby. um, so you know, if it was if it was that, he'd be talking to you. um so anyway, I, I, a lot of this came from this previous research. And in both places, I'd gotten quite interested in the ways people tried to organise life in such a way that compulsion and coercion weren't weren't really necessary. Um, even though those two contexts, across Papua New Guinea and Rwanda, are really very very different. Um, in Papua New Guinea, um, where I worked, there was no way. I mean, this was a small island, which is quite a long way from anywhere else. There's no police presence and so on. And so there was really no way at all that one person could force um, somebody else to do something. So getting them to cooperate depended on, you know, things like everyday kinds of exchange, kinship type obligations, making sure especially that social life conformed to certain visible patterns so that people, you know, knew what um, was going on and what was expected of them. So Rwanda is a very different context. um, And in Rwanda, the state is at least potentially very intrusive and actually very dangerous, potentially, for ordinary people. But at the same time, there was something quite similar going on um, in the sense that people were were keen to do as they were told or to be seen to do as they were told, or, or at least what they thought was being demanded of them by local and, and also by national leaders. You know, there's this joke in Rwanda that if the, the president woke up one morning and said he didn't like oranges, um, then tomorrow, you know, he'll wake up in a country that doesn't have any oranges in it. You know, that, that's the sort of the, the, the feel of the place. Um, and actually, people were very often trying to get out ahead of what was being demanded of them and do things that they, they thought that they were going to be asked to do later on. So there was this whole idea of, you know, sort of getting ahead of the state all the time, a sort of defensive gesture. And for me, that was something that really stood out because lots and lots of random studies is actually articulated in terms of resistance. um and James Scott's work is is a sort of huge touchstone um in random studies, but that wasn't really helping me much um to think about the material as I, uh, the, that I had um so I, I got explicitly interested in compliance on the back of that random research and I, actually it's the center of of the book that I published I You'll have to correct me. I think I published it in 2020. Uh, but, you know, I'm an old man. I don't remember that kind of thing. It came out with, with Lexington. It, it's it's called Motorbike People. Um, and a lot of the ideas underlying this volume, And of course, they changed as we were working on it and developed. Um, but a lot of the ideas that are underlying this volume, I, I was sort of working out for myself um, in that monograph and and this book in a sense was almost like a fishing expedition that was like we've got these ideas now I've got these ideas what do other people think about it and, and, and sort of trying to get response and to draw them out and, and to broaden them. Um yeah as, as a basis for thinking about the relations between compliance and resistance. Uh, and the implications of those ideas for for, for what we can say about politics and, and, and social life more generally.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for all these uh, clarifications and also the background story of how this idea come from, basically, is super interesting. So I think it's time for us to focus on the keyword compliance itself. So the most significant keyword in the book, obviously, is compliance. So uh, a simple question is, what are we talking about when we talk about compliance? What do you mean? By this term specifically,
0: right. Um, so, just so I get, just so I get this right in, in the context of the volume, I'm actually going to quote here. And in, in the volume, we or in the introduction to the volume, we define compliance as that set of means by which actors strive to accommodate themselves to others in their collective life. Now, that's deliberately a very broad definition, and it's broad partly because we wanted to let the concept work um, as a a heuristic, essentially, rather than than hemming it in. And in formulating compliance in that way, we've looked at a range of meanings for comply. Um, And one of my favorites, which came out when we were looking at everything that compliance might mean, um, and also I think one of the most revealing is actually an archaic usage where to comply could mean to weave or to braid. Now, I think that that's really useful as a reading of compliance because it draws attention to compliance as something which is constructive. The activity of getting on with other people, of accommodating to others as being something which is formative, constitutive, something which essentially weaves um, social life together. Now, I think that that constructive status for compliance is important because, as I said, all too often anthropologists want to talk about resistance as being you know, the opposite of compliance, which tends to mean that when people do do as they're told, you know, when they just get on with stuff and they get on with getting on with other people, that actually isn't very interesting or it seems not to be very interesting. So the notion of compliance that we're trying to establish in the book, trying to explore at least in the book. Is aimed at drawing attention to the ways in which these sorts of everyday accommodations are, are, are basic to collective life. So that's basically what we're trying to get at. We're trying to get at that activity of getting on, of accommodating.
1: Thank you very much. And in the following discussion, we can see how anthropologists actually apply this definition of everyday yeah. accommodation to specific socio cultural contexts. So, but I think. Prior to the birth of social anthropologies, many social theorists huh. had their source on compliance and all these source represented by two big names in social science and humanities. The first one is Thomas Hobbes and the second one is John Milton. So can you briefly introduce their theories of compliance and what are their legacies in the anthropology of compliance?
0: Right. So um, we discuss Milton and Hobbes in our introduction. And I think these two characters are interesting. And that's partly because they're working at almost exactly the same time, in the mid 17th century around the English Civil War. So at exactly that point where the state in its Westphalian form is first being theorized in Western philosophy, right? So essentially, both of them are thinking about the proper relationship between this new kind of state and the people who are subject to it. And they agree about some things, but they tend to think about this issue from opposite directions. So both of them think of politics as being about a relationship between a sovereign power and individual political subjects. But Hobbes, of course, famously thinks that the independence of those subjects is a problem because it can only lead to conflict, whereas, Milton is much more inclined to think that individuality and the freedom of the subject is fundamentally good. So the imposition of, of sovereign power is, is unjust. It's a problem, right? That, you know Milton's much more of a sort of libertarian kind of thinker. Now, in terms of legacy, um, the way that we've thought this and the way that we, we deal with it in the introduction is to use that opposition, which I think is right there at the basis of European political thought, to talk about the way that anthropologists think of and value collective life as collective life, right? (laughs) So, Durkheim was, um, you know, in in a way, a big fan of Hobbes and he lectured on his thought, and especially the Hobbesian idea of collective life as a necessity, as as a, a kind of bulwark against chaos makes its way into his work and then via that into structural functionalism and and British social anthropology in a big way. So there's this one tradition in anthropology, which is basically Hobbesian and is interested in social cohesion and assumes that that's a good thing. But then on the other hand, there's this other tradition, which is more recent, is associated with feminism, neo-Marxism, anti-colonial kinds of scholarship that's essentially Miltonian in the sense that it's suspicious of collectivity, right? And that suspicion takes the form of a critique of of, um, patriarchy or more broadly of um, uh, collective life as as taking the form of a system of domination, right? So the point I think that we make is that anthropology always seems to find itself stuck um, between these alternatives, which are essentially the same sorts of alternatives which are laid down by Hobbes and Milton uh, back in the 1640s. I mean, admittedly, you know, all of the good ideas of European philosophy come from the 17th century, right? But, uh, you know, it, it's still interesting that that pattern persists, I think.
1: Definitely. I think rather than just representing their personal individual souls, actually they represents two lines of souls and um, regards of compliance. One is more like Durkheimian, like more collective and to treat it as a necessity, and the other one is more for and it's to 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 add a discussion with more elements about power and domination and resistance so basically i think their legacies are still very strong in today's uh, social research about compliance and accommodation so basically uh, uh, so go ahead
0: well, I was going to say possibly. I mean, I I don't think I would identify Milton with Foucault, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, actually, I would say that, you know, all, almost all the good ideas of European philosophy come out of the 17th century, except the ones you can trace to Nietzsche. Um, and I think that actually that's interesting because one of the things um, which Milton and Hobbes have in common is the idea that power, um, and power is something that you use against violence. Whereas that sort of Nietzschean tradition and the the reason that Nietzsche is reaching back to Homeric heroes is because actually he wants to talk about the the violence which is implicit in power. Right. Which in some ways I would put that as a a, as a slightly different kind of tradition to the one that sort of I would put Hobbes and Milton in. But I'm splitting hairs. Sorry. Go on.
1: Sure. So basically, I want to talk more about the methodological difficulty of studying compliance. So why is it so hard for anthropologists to treat compliance as a serious and important issue in their research?
0: Right. Well, I mean, again, the way we've, I mean, this is a huge question, right? And I'm not necessarily qualified to answer it, but the way in which we've answered it in this introduction is through thinking about um Milton and Hobbes right and if you kind of accept that division in anthropology where you can choose to represent collective life in a Hobbesian form where collectivity is good and uh, you know social cohesion is good and the alternative is, is 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 something that you know might be anarchic or might be violent and that sort of older British social anthropological tradition and the other tradition which is skeptical of power is skeptical of collectivity and is by implication, therefore, basically a sort of liberal individualistic tradition in anthropology, right? Now, the problem that both of those traditions is going to have is that those two traditions actually already embed An idea about what compliance is and what its value is going to be so right from the get-go compliance is actually kind of embedded in the analysis as a pre-theoretical commitment right Hobbes thinks compliance is good right Durkheim thinks compliance is good it's actually not a question that you can answer what you're looking at is the effects of certain kinds of compliance but the same thing applies on the other side right if you're super interested in resistance and you think that people should be resisting state power or or what have you, then that also embeds this notion that compliance is problematic, right? And that it's somehow the sort of opposite of agency or the opposite of a politically effective action. So the difficulty of bringing compliance into focus is really, I think, about the way that anthropologists have tended to conceive the relationship between political subjects um, and the, the, the collectivities that they're part of, right? So it's really about, the problem is about the pre-theoretical commitments that anthropology has to particular ideas about you know, subject and collectivity and, and and power.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you very much for this uh, clarification. So despite all this uh, definitional and methodological difficulty, so how can we study compliance anthropologically or treating compliance as an ethnographic object? I, I remember you you know, posted three ethnographic approaches towards the study of compliance anthropology. So could you please briefly introduce your thoughts and questions to us?
0: Um, Yeah, sure. I mean, the sorts of... I mean, I don't think that there's a trick to studying anything um, ethnographically. I, I don't think there's anything special that needs to be done. If there's a trick then it's to avoid closing the question of the relationships that make collective life work, right? So not to fall into that sort of Hobbes-Milton trap of defining the players, the possible relationships between them and the means by which they can act on one another, right? So the way that we've tried to set up compliance as an ethnographic problem is actually to raise the question of who the actors might be, how they might be constituted, the actors of compliance, what the media are through which they comply, right? What sorts of things are enabling them to comply? What's carrying that relationship of compliance? And then what the collective life actually is, which is established uh, between these particular kinds of actors or subjects in the ways in which they're relating to one another.
1: Um, So yeah, I mean, that's the sort of intellectual setup,
0: as it were, that we're we're bringing to the
1: book. Okay, thank you very much. And so after discussing the question about compliance, I want to go back to the design of the book. So for any edited volume, I'm always curious about how and why editors frame the book in particular ways. Could you let us know why do you structure the volume in the current way? So what is your aims and goals in your design, basically?
0: Well, I mean, as an editor, I'm always intrigued looking back at books I've edited to try and remember why it was that I structured it in the way that I did. Um, I think in this case, I mean, there's not, I don't think there are very many interesting answers to this. Um, um, Not that it's not an interesting question. I think that what we did was we tried to move from, Um, accounts of of straightforwardly political compliance um, through compliance around taxation and medicine, which are areas where compliance has this particular specialised meaning in the practices in question, right? So, you know, tax compliance or uh, regulatory compliance, you know, treatment compliance, these kinds of things. These are actually words, compliance is a word which is in use in those fields. And then from there, we moved into more i guess you'd say everyday or unremarked um forms of compliance at the end i mean there is one very important chapter i mean obviously all the chapters are important but that one of the chapters is very important is, is is steve samson's chapter about um corporate ethics um which in some ways is a little bit of an outlier and, and steve has been writing about corporate compliance for years and you know he's he's a great expert um and his chapter is has, has the or is is really covering um from a corporate point of view those uses of 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 compliance which are very much in that sort of specialized business compliance sort of mode um which in a way is you know not being specialists in business compliance that we're skirting so he's he's doing quite a lot of heavy lifting um, in the volume sort of covering that angle, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it totally makes sense. And um, So let's discuss more about how to uh, study compliance ethnographically and based on the concrete examples provided by different contributors of the book. So the first ethnographic question you'll pose about compliance is who the actors of compliance are. So I'm pretty sure that all of us are to a greater or lesser extent actors of compliance in our life. So can you give us some examples from the volume to show why the actor of compliance matter in Analytical perspective and also how to identify the actors of compliance, basically.
0: Yeah, um, I mean you're absolutely right, of course. I mean, every, everyone complies all the time, right? So I think the question is about the relationships in which that or, or as which that compliance takes shape. So I think one really good example is, is in Anna Berglund's chapter in the book. Um, she's telling us uh, a story about a community of small farmers. Uh, or peasants in in rural Rwanda. Um, So this community, like like the rest of the country, is being affected um, in her chapter by agricultural modernization policies. And that means that what they grow and how they grow it is controlled by the Ministry of Agriculture. And that policy creates, and there's lots of literature on this, um, all sorts of problems um, for rural Rwandans around food security and income. Right, because they're not being allowed to grow the things that they they actually eat. They're having to grow things for, for, for market. And of course, if you've read James Scott, or I mean, a lot of the Rwandan studies material, which which draws on Scott, you'd you'd expect for there to be a lot of resistance. But what Berglund shows really well is that there, there isn't. And actually, the people involved are rather keen to get on board. Now, one way of interpreting that would be to say, well, you know, um, the Rwandan state's very active and it's very intrusive. It's coercive. So obviously, these people feel themselves compelled to do what they're told, right? And that's sort of the easy cut by way of a uh, a talk about power to thinking about um, how this compliance happens. But what Berglund shows is that the farmers aren't actually coerced. They want to comply. And they want to comply because they don't want to be seen as poor people, or as Rundons tend to put it, as, as, as backward people, you know, people with a backward mentality those backward and backward mentality. You, you can't see this if you've got the video, but it, they're in air quotes, right? Um, <clears throat> so the point is that if you want to talk about an actor or an agent of compliance, it's no good positing some kind of human universal or appealing to law or to the state in general or something like that, right? What leads people into compliance like these Rwandans is specific. It's not just the particular context in which that compliance happens, um, but the way in which people imagine themselves as people, right? The way they value themselves in relation to others, and in that this case that Berglund's talking about, that means not just that political compliance in this community is a function of how people imagine themselves. It's also going to make a difference to what they think they're complying with, right? Uh, because it's not just a law or a policy, but it's the way that that law and policy takes shape for them as something meaningful, as something effective and something that is forming their aspirations and their visions of, of, of who they might be in the future. So, I mean, that's what we're trying to get at, I think, with the idea of, you know, who the actors of compliance are.
1: Thank you very much. I think, yeah, indeed, we should treat compliance as a more interactive relation, interactive social practices, practices rather than just a one way action, a one way policy like something. And the second ethnographic question you pose about compliance, or we could also say the second dimension of analyzing compliance, requires researchers to pay more attention to medium and agencies through which relations of compliance operate. So um, in short, what do you mean by medium and agency of compliance and how can we achieve this goal by focusing on this medium and agencies?
0: Right. So for me, this is another call to, to specify and to be suspicious so it's really about picking away as you say at that assumption that compliance is necessarily extracted by force or the threat of force um on one hand or or, or i guess by by self-interest on the other and i'd hasten to add this is not in the slightest an original idea right and you only have to read Uh, Foucault's famous essay on governmentality to see that. And the whole point that Foucault is making there is that the construction of a political subject who can be manipulated through their interests, right, is something which is quite recent in European history and the result of a great deal of more or less deliberate political work, which originates around utilitarianism in the early 19th century. And in just the same way, Tim Mitchell was arguing back in the 1990s that for someone to be susceptible to threats of force, they first had to be put into a cultural position where those threats were imaginable, right? So we're not making any huge claim for originality here. So what we're really trying to do is to go beyond saying liberal political subjectivity and the media it operates in a historically specific, right? And we're trying to ask the question, If liberal political subjectivity is specific, then how else does subjection work, right? How else are people brought to comply with power? Uh, And even more broadly, you know, what has to be in place uh, for people to comply? And not just in the non-West, but also within the global North. And in the volume, to get specific, I think you can see this kind of argument coming through really clearly in Sarah Winkler-Reed's essay, which is about health and safety regulations on building sites. And the point in that chapter is that there's been a big shift um, in the UK construction industry from it's being relatively poorly regulated and very unsafe uh, before about the 1990s to being relatively heavily regulated now. So you've got this shift where site managers um nowadays are really committed to safety uh, and they're making real efforts to change a kind of macho culture, right, Where, where, you know, being safe. Um, wearing hard hats is is for wimps. <clears throat> so the point that Winkler Reed is making is that that shift isn't really caused by the regulation. Um, and it's certainly not about punishment. Um, rather, it's about kinship, right? And actually a sort of rearrangement of masculine work on building sites in terms of household obligations and, and you know people's commitments to one another. So that the best argument for getting people to practice uh, safely at work is that if you get hurt, you're gonna let your family down. Um, So the medium for compliance in that sense isn't just about law, right? It's not about coercion, it's not about police or or regulation or what have you, but it's actually a construction of gender and specifically masculine forms of work um, in in the context of households and things. Uh, And that's then the medium, if you like, through which these, these compliant relationships are operating.
1: Okay, so it's definitely not a A to B relation, but, a through some mechanisms to b and b also have some mechanism to a so it's basically a more complicated process could i understand in this way
0: yeah no exactly and we've we've borrowed the idea of 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 media essentially Mm -hmm. from the tour right um and the idea of, of of a mediator um as being something that stands between two things and makes a difference and makes a difference in um a way which is material on one hand, but is also in some ways um unpredictable, right? So I mean there's another example in the book I mean that I could draw on if you'd like. Um I mean Jonathan Stadler's um chapter is about um medical compliance in South Africa. Um and it, it it kind of also draws this out really nicely. He's talking about treatment for latent tuberculosis um in a black township in, in, in Johannesburg. And It's a context where medics tend to think of their patients as people who lie um, and are untrustworthy and are not likely to follow medical protocols. So they think of their patients as being non-compliant and awkward people, right? So one way of fixing that is to make sure that the patients are always supervised when they're taking uh, their medication. But that's, of course, very onerous and it's time consuming for everybody involved. So instead, the clinic that he's studying um, starts using this smart pillbox that has medications in it that can alert a patient when they need to take medication and can also record when the medication has been taken. Now that piece of technology, which is a kind of sort of panopticon that you can put in your pocket, right? I mean, it's a very sort of Foucauldian device um, is part of the media of compliance, right? I mean, it's, it's what is carrying that relationship. That's its whole purpose. But what Stadler's doing is actually really interesting because he's looking beyond that. This is again about the practical way, I suppose, in which you can ethnographically capture what these media of compliance are. He's looking beyond that sort of panoptic function of this device. And what he finds is that the patients who are using this box and and finding that it helps them to stick to their treatment regimes, they don't feel watched or monitored. Actually, for them, the smart pillboxes embody a kind of care, right? Um, Partly the kind of care and attention that they're not really used to getting in the healthcare system, but also the sorts of intergenerational care um, that are represented by not dying of tuberculosis, right? So that you're there for your family and you can bring up your kids um, and so on. So, in that case, uh, and I think this is something that comes out through all of the chapters paying attention to the way that compliance works, right, to its, you know, what we call its media or its agencies, it is really just about listening and not stopping the analysis when you come across something which fits into received models of politics, if you like.
1: Absolutely. And thank you very much for bringing this example of medical compliance into our discussion. I am very impressed by this chapter, uh, well reading, and I think it's definitely very helpful for our audience to understand uh, your opinion about, about the, actor, the, the actor and also the medium and agency of compliance. And about the said ethnographic question, you mentioned several times in the introduction that collective life as a whole can be specified in terms of the practice of compliance. So I'm very curious about what is the specific difference between this opinion and the theory of Thomas Hobbes about compliance as a necessary sacrifice for social life? So again, could you please give us some examples from the volume to uh, to to show this difference?
0: Okay, so I actually think the difference is 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 quite huge and quite fundamental in some ways. So <clears throat> Hobbes actually starts off his political analysis, as I understand it, anyway, from the idea that life can be thought of in terms of motion, right? Um, that it consists in movements towards things that you like and away from things that you don't like. And it's that model of the human that ultimately gives him the idea of compliance as a sacrifice and a submission to the sovereign as being self-interested, because without a state, anyone can move towards the things that they want with violence right they encroach on one another and that violence can't end because getting what you want makes you powerful and Hobbes thinks of power as something that other people will want and so the more you get the more you're going to find yourself under attack right so the peace that the state brings is all about giving people the time and space to enjoy what they have by only allowing them to encroach on one another in political and economic way mm. Mm. now what's obvious in that analysis and this is something that McPherson analyses so beautifully in his book uh, the political theory of possessive individualism is that it relies on a particular construction of the political subject and the kinds of media through which people relate to one another right and McPherson argues and actually this is something that in hindsight I kind of wish we'd dealt with directly in the introduction <clears throat> McPherson argues that the whole political scene in Hobbes is tied to the development of private property especially in land and mercantile capitalism in, in the 17th century. So the point is that in order to work, Hobbes's political theory already has to know who the subject of politics is and the ways and means of that politics, right? So, you know, to have this notion of the collective as this collective sacrifice, you need to have this subject and you need to have the idea of violence and the idea of encroachment. So <clears throat> that issue about the constitution of collective life, for me... Uh, And in contradistinction to Hobbes follows from what we've already been talking about in terms of who complies, what what kind of actor we're looking at and how the compliance happens, the media and agencies of compliance. right? So for Hobbes and also for Milton and, and for Locke and that whole tradition of liberal thought, what social life looks like and what it should look like follows directly from a definition of the political subject and the ways that subjects can relate to others and the way that they're related to authority. Now, that's fine, right? I mean, that, that's a particular construction of collective life. And it's a very influential one. But if, as we've asked the authors in this volume to do, you start to question the nature of the political subject, the sorts of relations that subject can enter into, then you're going to find out that the whole form of the collectivity is going to be different, right? I mean, this is essentially the basic observation that any theory of power has also to be a theory of the subject and a theory of relationships, right? I mean, that, that's kind of what, what's going on here. Um so in this volume, I think you can see this happening in a really interesting way in what are in some ways the most conventional chapters about compliance, which are the ones about taxes. So there are, there are two big chapters about taxes. Um, one of them is by um, Lotte and Larsen and Benedicta Brugger, who write about attempts to apply um, the same OECD guidelines on tax compliance for multinational corporations in both Norway and Sweden. Right? So it's a comparative thing. Um, and these are efforts to make government oversight of corporate tax affairs less adversarial, more cooperative, and therefore more efficient. Now, you'd think, given that this is Norway and Sweden, that they're really similar places where the outcomes of doing essentially the same kind of thing um, would align very closely. But actually, what they find is that the outcomes are, are completely different. Um, the Norwegian business community, you know, this sort of corporate, they they, they follow. Um, This policy through one particular corporation. Um, And they think the whole thing's a bit of a waste of time and and they're sort of confused about what on earth um, the tax office is trying to do. Whereas in Sweden, the Swedish business community gets terribly angry about it and the whole thing is totally rejected. Um, And what Larsen and Brugger are showing, I think, is that the respective tax authorities in Norway and Sweden, in trying to change the way that they do corporate taxation, are actually posing a really fundamental question, which is, what's a state, right? And how should it, how does it relate to its citizens? So, you know, what's a citizen as well? And how does this relationship work? So these policies, in a way, are actually addressing and in practice trying to change Right. What a corporation is, um, how it's going to relate to government and, 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 you know, what are the means by which that's going to happen? So it, it's really sketching um, a vision of the collective there. And then you've got as a sort of side to that is Miranda shield Johansson's paper, which is about um, taxation in Bolivia. Um, and the people that she's dealing with in, in um, urban Bol- Bolivia are, are more interested in using taxation as a way of making claims uh, to land. And other kinds of property, because their their logic is that if you've been taxed for it, then it it must belong to you in a context where, you know, property holding is, is, is sometimes a bit questionable. And it's a story about the same kinds of institutions, right? Taxes, government tax offices, these kinds of things, which are formatted in very, very similar ways, but again, with a totally different set of outcomes. And it's not just because they're in a different cultural context, I think, but it's because the Bolivians she's working with want the whole relationship of taxation to be something different and to do different work on the state and in a collective life that's also completely different and made different, I'd argue, by the way that they relate to it. So obviously the state and taxation and and, corporations and taxpayers and so on aren't everything that you might find in a collectivity, right? I mean, you want to think much more broadly than that. But in a sense, that doesn't really matter. The the, the point is that what I think is going on in these cases um, is that states and citizens, taxpayers, are hazarding specifications of collective life, right? They're saying, you know, what are we actually? And and they're working out what, what that collective is in the practice of of negotiating about tax so quite unlike in hobbes's theory those specifications of who you know who there is and how they might relate and what's going to come of it are actually up for grabs right They're, they're not fixed they're not set at the beginning and as a result of that i think they become ethnographically interesting um in in a way that you know the sort of liberal subject as it comes down to us from people like Hobbes, it, it, in a sense isn't because we already know what it is.
1: Thank you so much. I think our discussion has already shown how complex social interaction actually is and how a focus on compliance and can, can help us, especially for political anthropologists, to complicate, it, to complicate the whole picture of social react- interactions through a focus on uh, compliance. So basically, I want to talk about more practical issue about uh, the study of compliance. So I think compliance seen from an anthropological perspective actually offers us a very effective engagement with the crisis of the environment, politics, and health, which marked our contemporary era. So how can studying compliance help us cope with contemporary crisis?
0: Um, Yeah, so this is something that we, we, we sort of pick up um in the introduction and also in the in in the afterward to the book um <clears throat> i think what we had in mind when we were thinking about this was latour's argument in in facing gaia and also in down to earth where what he's doing is he's explicitly linking together environmental and political crises and i think these are sort of big crises right you know the rise of the of, 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 of the populace right and um, the climate crisis. <clears throat> now, the reason I think that the ideas about compliance can help to think through these issues is because the way in which the climate crisis and the, the, the crisis of populism seem to demand that we think differently about what we're complying with, <laughs> right? And this is something that that, that Stefan Dalsgaard, I, I mean, I won't go into huge detail about this because... I think that I would be straining what Stefan is trying to say in his paper. But I think this is something that I get from Stefan Dalsgaard's paper, um, a chapter rather, about um, carbon offsetting, right? So, I mean, the, the, the point that Latour is making, as through the notion of compliance, is that in this time of ecological crisis, we need to comply, not just with political regimes, but with a climatic regime, right? So and and one of the drivers of right wing politics also from Latour's point of view, at least, is the demand that we we kind of ignore that and we get back to something else, something older, something more basic, something purer. You know, there's make America great again, you know, that 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 kind of of politics, which is an effort, again, to force compliance with an old order, uh, an order so old that really today it's a fantasy compliance with with a myth so the problem for contemporary politics for latour is to bring itself into line to accommodate itself uh, to the right things right so first of all you know how do you go about complying with an ecosphere which is going to kill you right how do you do, how do you make that into a politics now that's the the question that latour is raising right Uh, And then to formulate the kinds of politics that will make those accommodations real. And I think that um, those are problems of, you know, those are exactly the kinds of problems of compliance that that we want to raise, right? In order to have that kind of politics, you have to rethink what the actors of compliance are. Who is complying? What are they complying with? And how are they doing it? You know, those are the sort of fundamental questions um, that, that speak to yeah, this contemporary time of crisis that, that, that we find ourselves in.
1: Absolutely. I think for me, when reading the book, I'm thinking about crisis time is very special because it, it actually make, makes useless the traditional dichotomous model of repression and resistance because we actually do not have a specific actor of resistance and repression, but we do have the new actor and new mechanism about compliance. So this is what I think your added volume is very important for us to to understand our current situation and how to deal with it. So focus focus focuses on a more specific crisis in our most recent time. This is a volume produced during the COVID-19 pandemic, which of course is one of the most influential crises in human beings' recent history. So I think it's appropriate to talk about the connection between compliance and the COVID-19. So why is understanding compliance helpful for us to face the aftermath of this pandemic?
0: Well, um, I'm not sure about aftermaths, um, but one of the things that that, that we were very, very interested in while the pandemic was happening uh, was the sort of spontaneous compliance with restrictions um, that at least you saw, and again, I don't, I don't know about the US context, um, but in the UK, you ended up with a lot of, yeah, spontaneous compliance. I mean, we had a government that um, was dragging its feet, didn't want to bring in restrictions, um, was very worried about doing that, and what you saw was a population which was very much out ahead of the government, right, in terms of staying home and wearing masks and social distancing and and all of these, you know, things that that, that later on. Um, became compulsory. And I think what's interesting about that, and it's the same kind of point, I think, as I'd make about the climate crisis, um, is what was interesting was that that compliance wasn't directly shaped by regulation, right? Because often it was ahead of it. What it was actually being shaped by, in some ways, was by what the virus actually was, right? And what people understood it to be. So one of the things that I... You know, this was saying I think that, that that Eric came up with rather than me, but it was a line that I liked was that, you know, the the compliance in the COVID, um, you know, in, in that moment of the pandemic um, actually made politics happen in the air, right? The politics was in, literally in the air. Uh, and that what you were doing when you were wearing a mask was not complying with a rule, but actually accommodating yourself to an airborne aerosolized virus. Right. Uh, in, 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 it was happening within your social relations. You didn't want to make people sick. And you, the air then was it was a salient medium of that relationship. And it was something that you had to deal with. So people were behaving in compliance with one another's needs. They were also complying with rules, but then they were also, as I say, dealing with um this virus and how they understood the virus moved and replicated i mean i say that you know i'm not sure about aftermath because i think that that moment of spontaneous compliances has gone right that this was something which was actually really interesting but it was just that moment right and again i don't know so much about the us but you know lots of people have gone back and they're saying oh you know this was terrible and all the rest of it But I do think that that moment in the pandemic, for all that it was very difficult, and obviously it was very tragic for lots of people and, 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 you know, had horrific outcomes for for very many people, is also a moment of hope because it's this demonstration that I suppose we, you know, in Western Europe, we probably haven't had since the Second World War, that social life can be radically changed. Um, And it's that kind of change to adapt and to accommodate not to what you want right and not to what you like but to what appears to be necessary that that, that's at stake right in you know the ecological crisis and the climate crisis in all of these kinds of things because you know really and truly it's 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 no good standing around crying about your inalienable rights as a Lockean subject when everything's on fire right i mean that, that that doesn't help and that's not an argument for trampling on people's rights but it is an argument for having the the, the conversations about, you know, what rights are going to fit, what rights are going to work in a world which is configured as it is, rather than saying, oh, my rights, my rights and setting everything on fire, which is kind of the alternative as far as I can see.
1: Definitely. I, I Yeah, I, I totally agree with you that I maybe choose a, a wrong word, uh, a, a, a bad word choice of word because if this crisis is ongoing, it's definitely not an aftermath. So yeah, definitely. Thank you for this reminder. And so although far from a heated or classic topic anthropology, I think you have already mentioned in the book that compliance has received increasing attention from anthropologists and from social theorists. So if a reader or our audience hopes to know more about the intellectual outcomes in this field, can you recommend some works from a perspective which might be helpful for us to understand compliance
0: yeah absolutely i mean in terms of the sort of the things which brought me here and which you know in lots of ways are, 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 are much uh, you know a really 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 good books i mean there i i've got a couple of things which are about rwanda specifically which are very interesting and take shape within the context of the rwandan genocide of 1994. So Scott Strauss's book *The Order of Genocide* and Leanne Fuji's book *Killing Neighbors* are both very much about ways in which government policies get enacted, or what look like government policies get enacted in the absence of policy. Right? The random genocide is really interesting because it's a an event which, you know, there's really no evidence was ever planned and yet somehow looks as though it should be planned. And what's brilliant about both of these books is that they really, really trace out how that works, right? And what the social relations are, which are involved in in, in replicating and and, and spreading that kind of thing. Um, In terms of post-genocide things, Andrea Perdykova's Making a Bumle is a great book and and, and does similar work in in the post-genocide context. There's a brilliant article by Nicola Palmer called Re-examining Resistance in Post-Genocide Rwanda, which is in the Journal of Eastern African Studies, I believe that's 2014, and it's very unfashionable and very old, um, but J.J. McKay's um, The Premise of Inequality is also a really interesting book, um, which is very much about compliance. I mean, those were the kinds of sort of Rwandan sources that I use, and I, I think a you know, are right there in terms of talking about compliance. And of course there's there's Saba Mahmoud, um, who is also interested. I mean, she doesn't talk about compliance as such in the terms that we've talked about it, but of course, she's very interested in um forms of political agency which are not resistant, right? In contexts where, as a liberal scholar, you might you might think they, they should be resistant. So I mean, her politics of piety um, is a fantastic book. Um, more, slightly more tangentially, um, another book which I found really useful and really influential is Ryan Schram's Harvests, Feasts, and Graves, um, which is actually a book about the same region of southeastern Papua New Guinea where I did my doctoral fieldwork. Um, what's interesting about that book is that he's using um, ethnomethodology um, and particularly Garfinkel to talk about the way in which complete well compliance but with the way in which people line up essentially right the way in which they they orchestrate observable kinds of activity that people can join in with and understand what's going on so i think that that's theoretically a very 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 interesting book um other things which i used or i, I found really useful thinking about this issue um and peterson's edited volume times of security um which we, we make a lot of use of in the in, in the framing the introduction but it's not directly about compliance but you can easily read it as a book about compliance and actually there's a lot of literature um which falls into that category of you know things you can read um as books which are really interesting books or really interesting piece about compliance I mean you could of course go to uh, Marcel Mose's um essay on the gift right which is fundamentally and actually really interesting like, a book about compliance, because you can only have obligation, right? Obligation only makes any sense if you also think about compliance. I mean, another thing which I found really useful thinking these issues through is, is, is John Law, um, and especially his essay about um, Portuguese navigation and the way that you can construct ships and systems of navigation so that, you know, you can comply um, with the west coast of Africa and, and and make it round to India. So, I mean, there's a... Uh, there's not that much, I think, out there. I mean, the random stuff that not that much that I know, anyway, which is directly, absolutely on the topic of compliance. But there's actually a lot of stuff in anthropology that I think you can read in this way, um, and you know, where you know, thinking in those terms might be might might be interesting.
1: Fascinating. I think it will be definitely very helpful for our audience to read all these ethnographies in parallel with the works of uh, Thomas Hobbes and also Jamie Scott, and to rethink about the more, the traditional model of resistance and repression, and to add more ethnographic texture to this kind of interaction in social life. So I think it's a very fruitful conversation. And as we are approaching the end of today's podcast, my last question is, what are you working on now? And what is your plan for your future projects? Are they still re- related to compliance or you want to you know, explore more topics?
0: Well, at the moment, um, having talked about COVID-19, I, I'm, I'm pursuing a, 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 what was really a COVID project. Um, so it was a remote project. Um, I started doing some work on um, plane crashes an air accident report, which are actually, this is related to work about compliance um, because some of the material that I'm dealing with is about you know regulation and how regulation shapes um, what happens in these kinds of events. Um, but I'm also interested in um, the idea of human factors um, in engineering and the way in which the notion of human factors um, constitutes subjects of particular kinds and you know formats the sorts of narratives um that can be told in in the context of of disaster and, and finally i'm interested in in air crashes as as narrative events in themselves um i mean your question of course assumes that i'm an organized scholar who has a plan which is 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 not necessarily true um so i mean it's early days i, I i've written a bit on that but we'll 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 see how it We'll see how it develops. I'm on research leave, on sabbatical at the moment, so I'm I'm, I'm working on that stuff, and um, we'll see where it goes.
1: Yeah, definitely. Thank you for sharing all this with us. And to be honest, by the way, I do think football is something really about compliance. Of course, there is some power and domination and resistance on the pitch and off the pitch, but on the pitch, particularly, it's all the footballers, they actually. You know, apply a logic of a compliance of accommodation, immediate accommodation to other players, and so the the game could continue, and or you know, all the same could operate. So basically, it's very interesting because I read your articles and books about football, and I'm a football fan, and so I'm thinking about the connection between compliance and football. Yeah, I'm I'm very sorry if it's a little bit absurd or something. <laughs>
0: no, 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 absolutely. I mean, I think I think that you're exactly right. Um, and actually, I I think the game. In general, um, are a really interesting place for thinking these kinds of things through. And I mean, there's David Graeber um, wrote a little bit, I think, about games. I mean, he was more interested in in, in games as the construction of a kind of reality. But again, actually, that that that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. We're talking about compliance, exactly as you say. You know, you don't have to um, be compelled all the time. You know, the referee isn't blowing his whistle. All the time.
1: Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank mm-hmm. you so much. It's very interesting to 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 see this possible connection. So, so well. Thank you so much for your time and thanks for coming to our podcast today.
0: Oh, it's a great pleasure. Thank you.
1: Yeah, the pleasure is all mine. So, in this podcast, we will discuss compliance cultures and networks of accommodation, an edited volume published in twenty twenty three. This volume provides insights from anthropologists around the world about the importance of compliance, how to understand compliance from an anthropological perspective, and how human beings may live both collectively and hopefully during times of a crisis through so strategically practicing compliance. Thank you for listening to New Books in Anthropology, and we will see you next time.